Let me ask God for help before we begin today. Heavenly Father, um, we, are, we are desperate to hear your voice. We don't need another man to talk. We don't need uh, the voice of, of any part of our culture or any part of even our own hearts. We need to hear from your heart through your word. And so I, I plead with you before my friends that you would come with great power and glory. And as we read this, the text of Scripture, that you would do what you've been faithful to do so many times before by your Spirit. Come and work in our hearts so that we would see and enjoy and be transformed by the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask this in your Son's precious name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles... Sorry. This thing is always tricky for me to get in here. I'm practically blind, not literally, but I need it up close to me so I can see. <laughs> um, so if you have your Bibles, please do, uh, take them and turn with me to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 1. We are rounding the final corner of um, our time in 2 Timothy and obviously our time together as a church family. And um, next week, if the Lord wills, we will gather for one final time and we will look at this epistle one last time. Um, but what I want to do this week is I want to just really look at a question that is posed at the beginning of this text that we're about to read. And that question is this. I want this question kind of in your minds as you are hearing what Paul says here. What would you tell your own child if you discovered that your time with them was about to run out, and you had the space of a few minutes. Like, what would be on your heart to tell them? What's the message you would want them to hear from you? Paul is writing his spiritual child, Timothy, from, we believe, Rome to Ephesus, and he's in prison, and he's awaiting execution. What will become very clear by the end of, of the text we look at today is that he's going to die very soon. He's already told Timothy at the beginning of this letter, if you were with us since chapter 1, how much he longs to see him. And he's expressed how much Timothy means to him. But the overall temper of this letter, and I think you might agree with this, uh, is that um, it's, not, it's not a reflection on all the good times that they've had together. There's not a lot of sentimentality here. There's not a lot of nostalgia. Remember that time when we you know, did this or did that? It's been absent of that. Paul has been giving Timothy a sobering call to Christian endurance. First as a believer, and then second as a, as a minister of the gospel, which Timothy is in Ephesus. And here at the beginning of the end of this epistle, this sobering call that he's been giving throughout the course of this letter reaches a crescendo with possibly the most weighty command, exhortation ever uttered by the Apostle Paul in the Scriptures. After impressing on Timothy, last, last week we saw this, um, at the end of chapter 3, the importance of being a creature of the Word, being in his Bible, continuing in what he has believed and what he has firmly learned, here the charge appears at the very beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. So we're going to read the first five verses and then hold off before we jump into the rest. Paul says this to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, Timothy, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. 
So before we get to the end of this letter where Paul has the, you know, the customary, if you're familiar with his, his epistles or really any epistles, the greetings and the requests that he makes at the end of his letters, before we get to that next week, Paul gives Timothy this, a charge. The word Greek here is diamar teramai, and it means a, a, a solemn or an earnest bearing of witness. It's to testify about something or before somebody about something. It is a charge. It's this impassioned plea from the depths of Paul's soul. And this is what he chooses to say to Timothy in the last few minutes he has with him. Later, we're going to see that he's telling Timothy, you need to come to me soon where I am. But we don't know, and Paul doesn't know, if Timothy would ever make it to him by the time of his execution. All Paul knows in this moment as he's putting ink to parchment is what he puts right here. I charge you, my beloved child, whom I long to see before I die, I charge you before God and before Christ Jesus. This is how Paul thinks. I mean, I don't know about you. You and I might be, I mean, I know me. I'd be, I'd be sort of like, you know, stuck in, uh, preoccupied with like sentimentality. And maybe even if we're cynical or negative, we're prone to those, you know, negativity, we might even be fatalistic and say, well, why does this have to happen? Why do I have to write this letter? Why can't things stay the way they always were, Timothy? But Paul doesn't think like that. He's not worried about his own life. He knows he's going to die. He's not even worried about Timothy's safety here. Paul has got one concern, the gospel the word of God, the proclamation of God's word in this world. And therefore, he issues this charge. He says, I charge you, Timothy, before God and before Christ Jesus, which is a heavy way to issue a command. This isn't the first time Paul's charged somebody in the scriptures. It isn't even the first time he's charged Timothy. He does that in the first letter. But this is probably the weightiest charge that he is ever, that is ever recorded in the Bible from the Apostle Paul. And I say that because of the nature of the charge. This charge is issued before God and before Christ Jesus, Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. Now think about that. Those two categories, living and dead. That means every single person who has ever, ever lived on this planet. That's who Jesus is going to judge. He also says, by his appearing in his kingdom. And so before we get to the charge itself in verse 2, I want to just sit here a little bit under the weight of all that Paul is piling on to this charge while bearing witness to Timothy one last time, while charging him to do what he's called to do. He's referring here to the return of Christ Jesus. It's the day prophesied in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord. And that's where he goes. He has this picture of final judgment of mankind that he's showing Timothy. When issuing a charge to his, his precious spiritual child, Paul doesn't put on kitty gloves and say, hey, listen, everything's going to be okay. It's going to be nice. He, he brings Timothy to the end of human history and tells him exactly what's at stake with this final charge. I think as Christians, we tend to numb ourselves to the gravity of this day because we are rightly justified before God through faith in Christ Jesus. But my question would be, and I think we'll see the answer here, is treating this day lightly the right response for someone who's been justified by faith? Listen to Paul talking to the church at Corinth about how ministers of the gospel should preach the word with reference to the final judgment. Listen to the words he uses here. Paul says, Each one's work will become manifest for the day, the final day, will reveal it, will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Just a few verses later, Paul continues. This, is, this right here is huge. 
He says, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not even aware of anything against myself. But, he says, I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then, he says, each one will receive his commendation from God. That's how Paul views the last day of human history. Romans 2.16, he says, it's according to the gospel that he preaches that God on this day will judge the secrets of men. This is how he sees final judgment. He doesn't see himself having just like a free ride to do whatever he wants to do. Even as a believer, this future day dominates his thinking about how he should live in the present. And this isn't just for teachers and preachers of the gospel like Paul. Listen to him in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In Hebrews 4, the same passage we read last week about the, the word of God being able to cut sharper than any two-edged sword, listen to this, provides more clarity about God and how we must, how, how, he, how the, the author of Hebrews sees God, God's word within the context of this final day. He says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now listen to this. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's heavy. That gives me goosebumps. So the Christian isn't to, to cast off all thoughts of final judgment just because we're justified. Rather, the impending reality of Christ's return is the lens through which we must live our lives in the present. For those who are truly justified, we don't eject and expel the weightiness of this day from our minds, but rather we, we live every day, every moment in light of the return of our King. He's coming which is why Paul brings this charge to Timothy. He's bringing Timothy's eyes, the eyes of his heart, to the end of time, where he'll stand before King Jesus and give an account for everything that he's ever thought, said, or done, or what he's not done. Now, do not hear me wrong. I want to make sure this is very clear. If Timothy is trusted in Christ Jesus, he is covered by the blood of the cross, and he is free from all condemnation. He's forgiven of every single sin. And we should take great confidence in what Christ accomplished in our justification, that we have the righteousness of Christ through faith alone. But what these verses tell us is that does not eliminate the reality of this day for every person, nor does it give us a free ticket to live however we desire without reference to this day. It is a real day. And our response to it evidences whether or not we actually believe Jesus when he says it's a real day. So here's where Paul goes when he's giving this final charge to Timothy. He goes to judgment day. He's saying, Timothy, live in light of this day. One day you will be in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge every human being who has ever lived based on what they've done. Therefore, live like you believe that. Walk in a way that shows that you believe that. First Peter has this line. If you call on him as father, that is God, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, don't play games with the time that you have. Don't make this into some trivial expression of, of, of life just like the rest of the world because you think that you know, I'm okay. I've got the free ticket to go to heaven. That's not how Paul sees this. That's not how Peter sees this. That's not how the New Testament sees this. For those who have faith in Christ, for those who truly believe him, Paul's charge should do two things. It should eradicate lackadaisical Christian triviality on one hand 
while never dislodging our confidence in the one who will sustain us to the end. Both those things it does. It should make us more zealous to do his will and more confident that for those who belong to him, he will provide whatever is necessary for that will to be accomplished and for us to be brought safely into his kingdom, which is actually what we're looking at next week, God willing. So before I go any further there, I'll stop and we're gonna look at what this charge. The context for this charge could not be any, any weightier. So verse 2, what is, what is, what is the charge? What is the, what is the motivation here? Preach the word, he says. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is what Paul has been saying since the very beginning of his epistle. I mean, if you've been with us any week, As we've been looking at this passage, you've seen this come up in some way, shape, or form. Chapter 1, he said, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, Timothy. What you've heard from me in chapter 2, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach. This has been Paul's MO every step of the way. Chapter 2, he said, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is what Paul's been saying this entire time. Preach the word. Now he brings this to a crescendo. Now, for, for Timothy, who's been teaching, who's teaching at Ephesus, who's a shepherd there leading the church, this command obviously takes a very specific meaning. It probably looks a lot like what's going on here. He is to faithfully, I mean, hopefully this is what's going on here. He is to faithfully discharge his ministry in Ephesus by preaching the word of God. The very thing that that Paul brought to the forefront last week when we looked, the sacred scriptures that he was taught as as a child about. He 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 is being called to always be ready to do this work, whether in season or whether out of season. Whether he's preaching this coming Sunday or whether he's on sabbatical, he needs to be ready to shepherd those in his care by preaching the word. He needs to be willing to to take the word and reprove them and rebuke them sometimes, even those he loves, to call out their sin, to call out their disregard towards God, even if it's difficult. Timothy needs that. He needs to be able to exhort them, to, to encourage them, to instruct and direct those under his leadership to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. This is the job of the pastor. And he's to do all of this, Paul says, with complete patience and teaching. Timothy cannot afford to live in such a way that the very instruction he is giving others is absent from his own life. He must be patient. He must take the time to teach them and to live by example before them. We saw this earlier when we looked at at chapter 2 when Paul was engaging some of the false teachers that are there in Ephesus. Remember these teachers were saying that the resurrection has already happened. You don't need to worry about that anymore. And that, that, that eradicates any effort at Christian hope. We looked at that a few weeks back. And Paul said there to Timothy, he's like, listen, even about these false teachers, be kind, Timothy, to everyone, patiently enduring evil correcting your opponents with gentleness. This is how Timothy needs to lead his church. This is how Timothy needs to love those under his his care. So Paul, at the end of his life, with a view of the deep love he has for Timothy, Paul right here is most concerned about his spiritual child's fidelity to the Scriptures about his fidelity to their faithful proclamation. And the reason Paul is charging Timothy with this commitment to the word of God and this this fervency that he needs about applying it to the people is because of what we read in verse 3. Look at this with me. Verse 3, Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, he says. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
Paul's concern here is, is his, his, his warning here is very clear. He says, as time, there, there is a time that is approaching, Timothy, when even those who are in your church, even those who profess faith in Jesus, reject sound, healthy teaching from God's Word. That time is coming. They're going to pursue teachers who accommodate their own views of truth, their own views of reality, without any regard, really, for what Scripture clearly teaches. They will have, he says, itching ears that will, that will, uh, that will cause them to not want to listen to you talk anymore, not want to listen to you preach anymore. That's going to happen, Timothy. People were, were going to eagerly gather to themselves. He says, accumulate. Think about that. They're going to add teachers to their list of YouTube playlists that are going to tell them what they want to hear, whatever suits their desires, whatever suits their passions. And in doing this, though they are blind to it, though they don't know that this is what is going on, they are turning away from the truth and they are wandering off into myths. It's a word that Paul uses throughout the pastoral epistles to describe the very kind of false teaching that he has been abominating throughout this entire letter. The, the teaching that leads people away from Jesus and about the hope of the resurrection. And I'm really, in our context, a myth is anything that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything that is, co- is contrary to his truth. And so Paul's telling Timothy, listen, always be sober-minded. Always be sober-minded. Think clearly and be ready, Timothy, to endure suffering. The suffering that comes part in parcel with a godly life. Be ready. And that is not a surprise to us. We've seen this over and over again. It's really the ever-present theme of the epistle. He's saying one last time, Timothy, share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. If you hold on to the truths of Scripture as I've taught you, be ready for people to walk away. Be ready for people to slander you. Be ready for people to do what Jesus said they were going to do, speak all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. It's going to happen, Timothy. This is, of course, in the context of Timothy's ministry, doing the work of an evangelist, doing the work of a shepherd, a teacher, to spread the gospel and to, to, to care for God's people. This is how he is to live. But I want to make sure this is clear. The specificity that Paul has here towards Timothy does not mean that there is nothing for us in this text so we can just go right by it. This right here is for every Christian to hear and to heed. At some level, these things collide with us. In fact, there are two massive realities for every single Christian that are applied to us in here, uh, in this charge. The first is kind of obvious, and that is that this is the call of a pastor for a church for his church. This is what it looks like for a pastor to be called to love and care for a church, and therefore it is vital for us to be a part of a church where the pastoral staff feels this reality. The reality of 2 Timothy 4. They understand this charge intimately, and they live underneath its weight. Whatever we're looking for in a church in this next season This truth has to be present. Its pastors must be committed to preaching the word. No matter the season, no matter the culture, no matter the external pressures, they need to be committed to this book. This is what it looks like to be called to be a shepherd of God's people. And they discharge their ministry in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. That's that's what they feel when they're getting up here in front of this book and in front of God's people. They recognize what's about to happen is going to happen before the presence of the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. This is the command that pastors must live under. Secondly, probably less clearly but more personally for each of us, although Timothy's teaching and pastoring ministry is in view here most clearly, we need to know that that does not therefore exclude the ministry to which every single believer has been called. We are all in ministry. And Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 makes this very clear. 
Paul says in that passage that, that God, that Christ, as he rose into heaven, gave to his people apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers, pastors, in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up, he says, of the body of Christ. That's the call of every single believer. Your job as a Christian is to build up the body of Christ. That's what we're here to do. That's what, we're, that's what, that's what our lives are for. The, the love and the encouragement we give to one another every day, being a witness for the gospel in whatever spheres of influence we have. Now, certainly we are not all in the ministry at the same capacity or in the same way, but we are all, every one of us, called to this task, the building up of the body of Christ. The work of ingathering those who really belong to Jesus and not only that, but as they come into the church, that we are strengthening them through exhortation and through encouragement and through just merely living life alongside each other. This is the work of ministry that we are called to do. No matter what church you're in, this is your calling. So Paul's command doesn't just apply to teachers. It applies to everyone at some level. And I'm honest, like, as I was reading this, if this letter ended right here, like if Paul said, grace and peace to you, later, with the weight of this massive charge on the reader's shoulders and the constant refrain of 2 Timothy in our ears to be faithful even in the midst of suffering, if it ended right here, for many of us, if not all, I mean for me, this would be a crushing responsibility. If we're commanded by Paul, fulfill your ministry because one day you're going to stand before King Jesus. That would be crushing, even if it's 100% true, and it is. But Paul has the heart of a pastor, and he loves Timothy, and he loves believers like you and me, and he wants us not only to know the weightiness of the call, he wants us to know the glory of its reward. He wants us, he wants us to know that glory that is ours in Christ Jesus and allow that glory to fuel in us a zeal to fulfill the ministry that we've all been called to. Paul wants us to know, I want, I just, I, I want to make sure this is clear, he does want all of us to know that one day the Christian will have to stand before God and give an account for what we've done in the body. 2 Corinthians 5 is clear on that. But the heaviness of that reality should not petrify us into immobility. It should instead, by the power of the Holy Spirit, forge in us a fire to accomplish God's mission at whatever cost, whatever cost. It should awaken in us a desire to give our entire lives to fulfilling whatever the ministry he has before us might be. And that, praise God, is why we have verses 6 through 8. And that's what we're going to read right now. And as I read it, I want you to listen very closely to Paul's words. He's going to tell, he's just told Timothy, fulfill your ministry. And this is what he says immediately after. He says, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, Timothy, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is Paul strengthening us. He's strengthening our hands to do what he's just told us we must do. And we know this because he puts the word for there. That word for, which, which is him saying, Listen, do everything I've just told you because of this. This is why you do this. And then he tells us what that is. 
So Paul, like we said, is about to be executed for the sake of Jesus. This is the end of his life. This is the end of his ministry. That's what he means when he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering, like a sacrificial offering that is poured out on the ground. You're not going to be able to pick it back up, Timothy. Once it's poured, you will not have me back. The time of my departure from this world has come. I'm going to die. And what comes to his mind here as he considers that fact is what he has done to fulfill the ministry, that he has accomplished what Christ sent him to do. Back in Acts 20, we've visited this text many times over the last four and a half years, you'll recall that Paul uh, stopped in Miletus to visit with the Ephesian elders, same elders of the church that Timothy is pastoring right now. And he says this in Acts 20, 24. He tells them as he goes to Jerusalem, thinking that he might die in Jerusalem since people are gunning for him, he says, I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only, he says, I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is Paul's ministry. This is his life. And as he approaches the end of it here in 2 Timothy, he takes his spiritual child in his hands and he says, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. I fought the good fight, Timothy. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. That doesn't mean he lived perfectly. That doesn't mean he, he never had failures. You read Romans 7, you see Paul struggled with the same kind of struggles that we all struggle with. He failed he made mistakes. He sinned just like all of us. But he had given his life to this purpose. He was dominated by this purpose. By, by doing this, by using this language that he's using here, he's actually returning early to the uh, commands that he issued earlier to Timothy in, in chapter 2. I don't know if you remember those three pictures of the Christian life. Remember, they were the soldier, the athlete, and the, the farmer. To, to share in suffering as a good soldier in Christ Jesus, committed to the, the one you've been enlisted to, or, or to be the, an athlete who follows the rules perfectly, who knows the rules, who lives the rules of the competition so that they can receive the wreath. That's Paul here. These are images of the Christian life to which we are all called. And Paul is saying right here at the end of his letter, I answered the call, Timothy. This was what I'm supposed to be, and I lived it out. I finished the race, and henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord Jesus Christ, the same righteous judge I mentioned in verse 1, who will judge the living and the dead, he's going to take that crown, he's going to put it on my head on that final day. But not only my head, not only my head, but also to all who have loved his appearing, who loved his return. And this is really the single most important aspect of everything we're, we're looking at today. This is what allows us to finish our, to fulfill our ministry. It's Christian hope. It's the hope of a Christian. It is the eager desire that every Christian has for the return of Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's the logic that he's using here. After giving this command, he says, here's why. Here's why you can do it. Here's how you can do it. There is inside of you, Timothy, a life-shaping, life-defining hope that is in every single person who's ever trusted in Jesus. It is the heartbeat of every believer. And that hope is fixed on and anchored to the final day when the Lord Jesus will return to gather those who belong to him those who he ransomed by the blood of the cross. Peter, in his first epistle, we actually looked at this, I think, two Christmases ago, two Christmas seasons ago, like 2019 maybe. I don't know how long ago that was. It was 2020 was between it, so it could have been like a thousand years for all I know. Um, so Peter says this. This was a Christmas text because it talks about our joy, but in this part, it sets the basis for it. He says that according to God's mercy, this is 1 Peter 1, three or four. According to God's mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We have bookmarks, right? Outside there, just on the table, that have this verse on it. It's very important to us because it's where our church's name came from. This inheritance, this living hope that is fixed on that day in the future through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that's the crown of righteousness that Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy. And the entire thrust of the Christian life from the first moment you came to believe is this hope, this singular hope. It's what sets us apart from every other person on the planet. It really is. This inexplicable longing in our hearts and confidence in our hearts that Jesus is going to come back one day. And we're there's something in us that is desperate to be with him. I mean, isn't that strange? Do you not find that? But I find that bizarre. I've never seen Jesus with my eyes. But I want to be with him. I can't stop thinking about him. Even when my mind's on other things, he's somewhere in my thoughts with me. And in, in our hearts, there is this genuine desire for him to come back and take us to himself. That's a Christian. The life of someone who's been born again by the Spirit of God is very unique, very strange, very different from the world because what defines us isn't just what's happened to us in the past. That's part of it. But what defines us most dominantly is the certain promise we have of what is to come. Isn't that weird? I find that so fascinating. We were born again to a living hope. There is a passion in us that burns within us and drives us to live for Christ because we want to be with him. And Paul is saying this is what enables us to faithfully execute our ministry. This is, this is the key. That's why he brings it up here after the charge. It is vital for us to see that our ability to fulfill whatever ministry we've been given by God whether it's preaching the word, whether it's evangelism in the streets, whether it's even just sacrificially loving our neighbor, whatever that is, it is rooted in this hope. Do we love Jesus? Are we eager to be with him? Do we long to see him? Or do we find ourselves, like the rest of the world, enamored with the things that are here? Do we find ourselves in love with the fleeting fashions of a, of a culture that is godless, that doesn't know this hope at all? That's the question that's being asked here. Do we possess a living hope that evidences that God has graciously intervened in our lives because this hope is what enables to do what we are called to do? And Paul is saying, what drives our, our ability to, to, to fulfill our ministry ultimately isn't a checklist of things to do, though that might be helpful. It's not a, a gritty, you know, can-do attitude. It's not even white-knuckling it to do whatever it takes so that God is pleased at the end of the day. What drives our ability to fulfill our ministry is one thing, a deep love for Jesus, a love for Jesus a profound longing in our souls to be with him forever. That's why Paul puts this statement right here in 2 Timothy. The, the inertia of the Christian life isn't primarily based on what has happened to us in the past, though what has happened to us in the past is enormous. But that's not the main thing. The flow of our lives is more like the swelling of a wave before it meets the shore. There is this future event that dominates everything. Our king is coming for us. That's how I live my life. This hope, this confident hope, is the furnace in the engine of the Christian life, the promise of the resurrection, the promise of being with him. It's a, it's a certainty that not only did Jesus die for us, not only did he ransom us from sin and death through his work in the gospel, but that he will return one day. And Paul wants Timothy to throw coal, as it were, into the furnace of this Christian hope that we have. 
He wants him to see, listen, it is a passion that you have for Jesus that, that produces this in your life. Jesus has to be everything to you. I think we overcomplicate. I mean, I, I'll just speak for myself. It is easy to overcomplicate the Christian life and make all of these checklists and then try to fulfill our, our ministry through grit or through some sort of human resolve. And those aren't bad things, but we find ourselves, if you're like me, failing over and over and over to do the things that I should be good at. I should be able to do this now. I shouldn't have to deal with this sin. Like, I shouldn't be angry anymore about these things. I shouldn't have to deal with frustrations, or I shouldn't have to deal with, you know, an inability to share the gospel. We find ourselves failing over and over again, and we look at Paul and say, how can you say, Paul, that you have fought the good fight? I can't even finish last week right. He's finished the race, and I struggle day to day. And I think the reason why is we think that keeping the faith is caught up in every single thing that we can do for Jesus, but that's not what keeping the faith looks like here. He says the crown of righteousness is awarded to one kind of person, those who love his appearing. Those who love him. That's where it starts. If we lose sight of that one thing, it does not matter what we do for the kingdom because it isn't for Jesus. It isn't rooted in a love for Jesus. This is the living hope to which we've been called. Jesus says in John 14, he says, listen to the order of this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The order there is massive. Any obedience we have must flow from a genuine and deep love for Jesus, a desire to know him. When we pursue Christ, when he is our focus, we're going to find in us an ever-increasing zeal to obey his, his commands and to accomplish whatever it is he's called us to. The focus is on loving him. That's what our lives are given to. Paul knew this intimately. His desire, his goal, his entire life wasn't de dedicated to ticking off boxes of accomplishments, to getting cities for Jesus. It was dedicated to one thing, Jesus knowing him and loving him. And we know this because of what he says in Philippians 3. I'm going to read this passage, read this to you many times before. What I want you to think of when you hear this passage is not just Paul's abandonment of everything else that he could focus on in his life for Jesus. That's important. But I also want you to see his connection to the hope of the resurrection, the day when Jesus comes back and raises him physically, from the dead, to be with him forever. Listen to, listen to Paul's rationale, his logic here. Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of, re, think about these words, all things, and I count them as rubbish. I count them as dung. That's the literal word in the Greek in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now listen to this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. By any means possible. Paul was a man preoccupied with one pursuit in his life, Jesus. It's all he wants. Everything in his life, every ounce of ministry, every ounce of planning, every ounce of strategy, those are all good things. All of that was subservient to one thing. He loved Jesus, and this is how Paul finished the race. This is how Paul fought the good fight. One thing, knowing Christ, pursuing Christ, making Christ the center of every part of his life. Every single thing that he did that is worthy of commendation flowed from his desire to know Jesus and to be with him forever. And this is why the hope of the resurrection is so vital for the Christian. The resurrection, we looked at this last Easter, the resurrection isn't a part that comes after the gospel. The resurrection is part of the gospel. It's part of the gospel. It is huge. 
It, because it is the only way that we can be with the one who redeemed us. It is the only way that we can be with the one who loved us and gave his life for us. And Paul knew this, which is why he says at the end of this text in Philippians, listen, by, many, by any means possible, by any means, I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what it takes. I just want to be with Jesus. I want the resurrection from the dead so I can be with him. He longed for Christ. He longed for Jesus' appearing. Now, don't get me wrong here. The specifics of the Christian life, the glories of all the variegation of theology and the, the, the beauty of the scriptures and how it unpacks every facet of the Christian life is important and critical for us to, to, to seek and to understand. But we must never divorce it from this reality, from this truth. It, 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 it can never be said of us that we honored Christ with our lips and checked off all these different ministry goals and yet our hearts were far from him. We need to be able with Paul to say, listen to me, everything, everything in this world is lost for me next to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. I just want to know him. I want to be with him. I want to be in his presence. I want Jesus more than anything else in the world. He alone is my living hope. He alone is my risen hope. And this is why we call the church risen hope. Risen hope is not just a, you know, sort of like a cute, clever name for a church. Risen hope, it touches every aspect of the Christian life. At the, at the center of the Christian experience is this unwavering risen hope. Everything flows from this. To have a risen hope is to be a Christian. It is to be, to be driven by an otherworldly desire for Christ, an inexplicable longing that God has given us to be with Jesus. So, I mean, one thing to take away from this is don't overcomplicate your walk with Christ by creating expectations and goals that are divorced from this one thing. Jesus is your life. Jesus is your hope. Jesus is everything to you. So as we contemplate what the next several months are going to look like for each of us, I want you to know you can come to him. In fact, not only can you, I want you to know that's what you must do. Come to Jesus. Long for him trust in him. Seek him. Do everything in your ability to, to stir your affections for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will find yourself, at, just like Paul at the end of his life saying, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord Jesus will hand to me on that day. That's the promise of the resurrection. That's what our new birth, the first moment we had faith in Jesus, has been drawing us into ever since that day. This is, this is a, there's a day coming when we will see him. It's almost too much for our minds to even consider. He will break open the sky and come in the glory of his Father, and we will see him in the fullness of his glory. And he will bring us up into his arms where we will be with him forever. That day is real. This isn't a fantasy. This isn't the kind of hope that the world has. I hope it happens. Christian hope is an unwavering certainty that what God has promised, he will accomplish. And this day when it comes will be more real than any day that has preceded it. Hebrews 9 is where I want to close. The author of Hebrews sums up Christ's first coming and his second coming. And he has a nice note at the end that I want to just lean on for just a second. Hebrews 9 says that Christ Jesus, who having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's the gospel, offered once to bear the sins of many, will come a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now listen to that. Who is he saving? those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's us. That's you and me. If you're, if you're a believer, if you trust in Jesus, 
That's us. It is those who have a risen hope. And what 2 Timothy 4, how we begin to sort of come around the reality of the, the, the mission that we've been given as Christians is by recognizing that Jesus Christ alone is that hope. And that our entire life should be in orbit around him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the, the, the weightiness of this charge is enormous and daunting. But I take great joy in the fact that it is eclipsed by the glory of its reward. And so I, I, I pray right now, Father God, that you would work in the hearts of, of my, myself and all of my friends here to, to grant us sight, divine sight, sight from the eyes of our hearts, enlightened by the hand of God to see this living hope as our treasure, to see this risen hope as, as really the sun in the solar system of our affections, that nothing has this place but Jesus, that nothing takes the spot at the center of our lives but Christ alone, not even our family, not our friends, not our job, not our, not our, our, our city, not even our country, not even, not even anything in the world. Like none of, that, none of that supersedes the one thing we need to see, and that is Jesus. He is everything to us. And so I plead with you, Father God, that you would help us to feel that and to know it and to walk in it and that through that love and affection, Father God, you would do a work in our lives to fulfill every aspect of ministry that you've given us, no matter what it is, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much suffering it might entail, that we would walk in joy knowing that our treasure, our living hope is in heaven and he's waiting to come and bring us to himself where we will be forever at his right hand where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Help us to feel that gladness in Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.